right. Thank you for joining us this week on Holy Living Podcast. I'm Dr. Janae Eisenstroms, and today our guest is going to be Shelly Zalas. Now, most women know her from her platform, The Female Quotient, which is dedicated to advancing gender equality. Uh, hi, Shelly. How are you today? Hi, Janae. I'm so thrilled to be here with you. Excellent, excellent. I'm very excited to have you on our podcast this week to talk about the all ongoing question advancing equality for women, which I know is one, it is your favorite topic of conversation. So I wanted to ask you, because I think this is one question when people see you on social media or even see you in the news, is how, why equality? Like, how did you end up becoming one of the people spearheading this movement? You know, it it all happened by accident. I certainly did not think that I would ever be in the business of equality. I was in the business of market research. And if you've ever taken a survey on the internet, have you ever taken a survey today on the internet? I have. Okay, so I'm the mother of that invention. Sorry, not sorry. But that really was what I did my entire career for over 30 something years. I was the only female CEO top 25, and I always knew that I thought differently, I acted differently, and most of the strengths that I thought were my most valuable strengths were quite invisible in the workplace. And so later in life, you know, I had sold my company. It was the fastest growing research company in the world, especially establishing online. After I sold my company to um, a French company, a publicly traded French company, I decided that it was time to give back with generosity what I wish I had rising the ranks my entire career. So I, I say, you know, we started as a moment, we moved into quite a large movement. And now I'm proud to say that my legacy will be around closing the gaps, advancing women and advancing equality across race, age, intersectionality, LGBT um, ability across the board. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of people, and you're really humble too, because you have worked with almost every major organization. I think more of the question for you is what organization haven't you worked with since starting the female quotient? But one question I do have for you is around social and economic impact of equality. We've heard this before where it said that women are better executives, women, we operate better in certain positions. What, is, what, what have you seen to be the, the difference between men and women at the C-suite level? Well, you know, first of all, we say gender equality is not a female issue. It's a social and economic issue. And we talk a lot about diversity being good for business. Diversity is good for culture. Diversity is good for innovation. Diversity is great for bottom line performance. Diversity is great for thought across the board. So we know the business case for diversity and we've seen the numbers. And, you know, when we look at the masculine and feminine qualities of leadership, the masculine, decisive, linear, aggressive, assertive, the feminine, collaborative, nurturing, empathetic, passionate. These are all traits of great leadership. We're actually starting to see that the soft powers, the feminine, are defining moments for leaders today. And plenty of men have feminine 
qualities and plenty of women have the masculine. We need both of those types of skills, the cognitive and the emotive in business to truly create the best organization, attract and retain the best talent, create a culture of belonging and listening and caring. And ultimately that delivers better bottom line performance as a whole. So all of these things are necessary. And, you know, it is quite clear. I was doing a um, keynote I was a co-keynoter with the former CEO of Deloitte and his name was Barry Salzberg and he was quite amazing and he pulled me aside. His speech was, you know, rise the ranks in five easy steps or something and mine was bring emotion to the boardroom. And he pulled me aside after he said, you'd be very proud of Deloitte. I said, what happened? He said, we put our first female CEO for the United States to run Deloitte. And I said, why? To fill a quota or to make the table better? And he told me an amazing story. He said, we used to have three out of 22 women on our board. And those three women did not speak up very much. They weren't that vocal. And I said, so what'd you do? He said, I took out five guys, added five more women, eight out of 22. And I said, what happened? He said, we we moved from the what to the why. And he said, and the first three women that were, you know, not as vocal became the most vocal, you know, in the room. And it, it made the table better. And it made the conversation more contextual, more story, and really looking at solutions versus just outlining the numbers and the problems. So there's plenty of real life case studies that show the impact of diversity at the table and the benefits and the bottom line results. Well, what do you say to people that there's a clinical, a Canadian clinical psychologist named Dr. Jordan Peterson, who's been known, he's been roasted a little bit in the media, especially in UK media, for saying that equality really isn't an important factor. It's more of the variables in which women are considering engaging equality. How does a woman in your position or somebody that's advocating for equality in the C-suite at the board level feel when you hear that? Because it's, for you, it's not just C-suite and board level. You're also looking at the social impact of equality. Yeah. Well, first of all, I would, I would say, do you have a daughter, a sister, a mother, a girlfriend, any friends that are, are women? Because if you do, I couldn't imagine that you would accept the fact that your daughter would come home one day and say, dad, I have the same job as a guy, but he, I'm paid 80 cents on the dollar, you know, for the same work. And, you know, when you look at women on average, now we're 82 cents on the dollar, black women, 60 four cents on the dollar, Latinas, 53 cents on the dollar. So for me, I would first start by saying, how would you feel if your daughter came home working her butt off, doing the same thing that a guy does, finding out that he's making, you know, 20% more? I I think he would have an issue with that. Or let's just go simple to this doctor. If his daughter and son went in to get an ice cream cone and they both paid a dollar for the cone and the scooper would give the boy two scoops and the girl would only get one. It's not fair. And there's no reason for that. So I would challenge him to say, think about if you had a son and a daughter and how you would feel if she was not treated the same as, as his son. 
Yeah, I, I would definitely love to see your, your challenge with him. Right. Just put us together. I'd love, to, I'd love to have a conversation with him. Yeah, no, he's definitely received a lot of pushback. And I just wanted to get some of your feedback on that, oh, which also leads me into your modern guide for equality. When this, now, did, was this always the initial focus in creating this guide or was this kind of like an, a natural part of the evolution? Now, when you look at the World Economic Forum's results, they they publish studies all the time, and so does McKinsey. And right now, it says it will take 257 years to realize gender pay equity. 257 years. And they also say that it'll take 99.5 years to realize gender parity in the C-suite. So, I mean, that is just ridiculous. And part of the problem is that so many organizations are doing the same thing in silos and we are going backwards. The other problem, we admire the problems. We talk about the challenges, but we have to stop admiring the problems and creating the solutions for change and the measurement for accountability. So we created the Modern Guide to Equality so that we can create a curated playbook of the good, bad, and the ugly. If, if all Fortune 500 companies can share what they're doing that's working to close the gaps. And we look at the gaps in terms of parity policy and pipeline. Parity, the wage gap, pipeline, the diversity coming into the pipeline, but also mapping the pathway to leadership because we find that most women fall off in middle management, which we call the messy middle. And then policies. What policies should you be instituting, implementing, amplifying, accelerating that will truly help you attract and retain your best talent, not just the available talent? Because the biggest problem in middle management is caregiving. Caregiving, you start gaining more responsibility at work, more responsibility at home, and caregiving is still by default predominantly a female issue. Leadership is still by default predominantly a white male you know, issue because that's who's occupying the seats at the table. You know, this Modern Guide to Equality was really just interviewing leaders across the board of what they are doing in each of these buckets so that we could share it with everyone and make progress forward versus recycling old air and each other's air and, and keeping secrets. This is, equality is something that we all share and equality is something that we all unite on. So what do you see as the solution for navigating or getting more women from the midi- messy middle, as you mentioned it? into upper management C-suite positions? Well, you know, I didn't get my name chief troublemaker for no reason. I break, <laughs> all the rules. I break the rules and write the new ones. Actually, oh, here's my title belt. Oh, you can't see it. I'm not on video. I was going to show you my title belt from WWE that says chief troublemaker. You know, I, I think it's just time to break some of those rules. And one of the biggest problems, and Ariana Huffington said this to me at the World Economic Forum a couple of years ago, she said, Shelly, I don't understand why we do exit interviews. Everyone's gone. Why don't we do entry level interviews? And then I started thinking, why don't we do life stage accommodation? I'm 58 years old. When I was raising my children, I have three children that are now 23, 25, and 28. But when they were younger, you know, I, I had to that whole work-life balance, you know, which creates stress. There is no such thing as balance. You have one life with five dimensions. We know all those things. But if we could accommodate our people, people are our most precious resources. They're gold inside of organizations. If we could accommodate 
people through their different life stages. If you have young children and you need a more flex schedule or you have elderly parents and you want to take care of them or you have a dog or you have a boyfriend, you know, so many people say, well, I'm not going to get married until I'm 65 years old when I'm retired. Well, you know, I don't think you should have to wait that long. So if companies truly adjusted schedules accordingly, where people are not the exception to the rule, but everyone becomes the new rule. And that accommodation is for everyone. So everyone can bring their best self to the table, their whole self to the table, you know, work because they love what they do. That would create a whole new cycle of happiness. And in turn, happiness leads to success in in, in so many ways. So the messy middle is one of those really important areas where Women, when they get to that stage, do one of three things. They either rise to leadership, but they have tremendous challenges at home, quote unquote, doing it all, or they opt out of the workplace and then coming back in is not simple, contrary to what others say, or they do what I did at that time, which was leave and start my own company so I could write my own rules and become the new norm. So the question really becomes, What can companies do within their organization around their policies and their flexibility and their fluidity to do life stage accommodation to ensure that they can keep their best pipeline, but also navigate the best pathway for each individual to bring, you know, truly their best self to to work and also be able to be very fulfilled at home. Uh, I'm in complete agreement with you. We run, I run my organization that way as well, and hence why we're here having this conversation today. I, I think the one question that it's always presented to me, and I, I believe that this disruption with COVID revealed some of the chinks in the armors of some of these organizations that really just didn't know how to navigate through remote working for their their employees, right? Because there was such there's such an emphasis on coming into the office. Why do you think that? organizations still to date need that level of governance over their employees. Because, and I I asked that, Shelley, just due to the fact, I was actually astounded by the amount of companies that really didn't have any form of choice for their employees. Listen, I am an employee. I, I believe in flexibility and I have a lot of the uncorporate rules, you know, get your work done. And, you know, I don't care about a time clock and how many hours people work, but I, I don't, you know, as long as they're not leaving their team hanging and pushing all their work on someone else. But, and, however, I'm not sure what the word is. I am not the person that believes in a total all-in work-at-home culture. For now in COVID, you know, we don't have an option, but it's not because I believe in keeping everyone at an office, but I really do believe in the people interaction. That's how trust, that's how relationships form is when you're, you know, with someone in person, whether you're in their group or not. You know, right now on Zoom, you're invited on the team call or on the project But I think you lose a lot of that interpersonal relationship. And so I still believe in in in-person. There's impromptu meetings. There's lots of things that are invisible things you pick up being around people. So I still believe in, I'm a people person. I still believe in that being around people. And I also think intellectual curiosity is good when you're out 
and about and in the world. So I, I am a hybrid. You know, I believe in flexibility. I believe in helping, you know, accommodate and life stage accommodation for everyone on our team. We're about 25 full-time people, but I don't want to underestimate the power of being surrounded by people, the stimulation, the intellectual curiosity, the discovery, the proximity to other people, the knowing who people are. Of course, we see that, you know, on Zooms of, you know, people's backgrounds and stuff, but we won't, we won't be an, an all-in stay-at-home organization when we can, you know, be back together again. So then what do you say to companies like Google and Twitter? Google came out, their CEO came out and said that he doesn't anticipate the staff returning until the new year. And I believe Dorsey said for, from Twitter that he doesn't even care if his employees ever come back to the office. Listen, health and safety is is most important. So let's just say that. So as long as, you know, the safe place to be is in everyone's homes, I'm all for that. I would never push that ahead of, you know, accelerate that ahead of when it's it's the right time to go back into a physical workspace. There's also a lot of industries, you know, like tech that people can work totally from home. And so, you know, those are company choices. You do save a lot of money on real estate. That is for sure. I know for a fact that our team has been as productive, if not more productive, more connected than ever before in Zoom. You know, one month is good, two months, four months, maybe nine months. But at a certain point, people are craving that social interaction. We're humans are social people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think we have the need for that social interaction. So, you know, every company to their own. But, you know, I say that when we can return safely, we will. And of course, we will make whatever accommodations that will not be exceptions. It will just be how we roll. I mean, that's how we were pre-COVID. If people, you know, I always tell people, don't miss your kid's birthday, soccer game, your parents' anniversary. You know, don't miss the important things in life. I never want anyone to have, I have a no regret policy. I never want to look back and say shoulda, woulda, coulda. So live in the moment, you know, enjoy those moments and, and make it work. Agreed. Agreed. What What is one of the common questions that you hear or a feedback that you hear from women leaders in upper management? And whether that be, you know, concerns, like those vulnerable moments. You've probably heard a few women leaders kind of share some details with you or insecurities with you. What do, is there a commonality or any similarities in some of the feedback that you've heard over the years? Well, you know, it's, you know, there's something called the imposter syndrome where we have that voice in our head that says we're not good enough, we're not qualified, we're not ready, we can't juggle a family, we can't, you know, be on a board, all of those voices. Um, so number one, comfort. Uh, men have those same voices in their head. Men just ignore them and women let them get louder and louder. So the, you know, the, the thing we talk a lot about as women in business and women supporting women, which is what the FQ, the female quotient is all about. We've created the largest global pack of women in the workplace, over 50,000 strong, supporting one another, regardless of category, regardless, regardless of industry, regardless of level. It's been just one big, beautiful group of women creating relationships with one another. It's one of our powers is relationships. 
It's not just a, a deal where you shake someone's hand and network and give them a card. It really is about love and you know putting your heart into business, which is a good thing, not a weak thing. It's a strong thing in my mind. So, you know, I think we all have those voices in our head, you know, what we can and can't do. So that's a vulnerable moment, period. I think the other is how do we be assertive and powerful, but not uh, coined bossy or angry or aggressive, you know, so, you know, rewriting that lexicon and making our invisible strengths quite visible and recognized and rewarded and acknowledged because I believe that those strengths are truly the greatest reflection of the best leaders today. We see it every single time. And how do we get more women, you know, into C-suite leadership? How do we get more women onto boards? How do we groom this next generation of women to come in with confidence and, you know, balance, quote unquote, doing it all. And so I always say, you know, everyone has to do it all their way and that's good enough, you know, and not look at over your shoulders and, and look at what others are doing, but, you know, be you and don't hide your strengths because your strengths are truly your greatest differentiators. So own them, celebrate them, stand out, stand up and use your voice. It matters. I love the part where you talked about rewriting the lexicon. How do you think we should socially start rewriting that lexicon that lets women know that they deserve to be there? Because I know that that's something just has come up a lot in my conversation when, I, when I've when i spoken for keynotes or just even talking to women um, at university level. They've said, well, how did you not allow race or gender to ever stand in your way when working at corporate levels? Well, I've had to share with them, in fairness, I just never cared, you know? And, And as much as people think, well, you must have grown up in this really, you know, effective household. No, I grew up having, in a tumultuous household, having to navigate through these insecurities. So a part of when I started thinking about how do we rewrite this lexicon of knowing that you deserve to be there, what is your take on that? Well, by being there and, you know, showing up and and showing up truly with your authentic and vulnerable self. You know, when I've been told my whole career, there's no room for emotion in the boardroom. That was that moment I said, you know, it's just, that's not going to define me. And I went the next day and gave a speech to a thousand people, bring emotion to the boardroom. And so, you know, who wrote that lexicon? I mean, the rules of the workplace were written over a hundred years ago by men for men because women just weren't in the workplace. Well, here we are. And, you know, it's it's sort of how the whole girl's lounge, you know, the female quotient started with something called the girl's lounge because I decided to take on the boys club. The opposite of boy is girl. The opposite of club is lounge. And, you know, in its early days, I remember women saying, but we're not girls, we're women. And I said, have you ever heard of a man object to being a boy in the boys club? I said, why are we creating double standards for ourselves? I said, first of all, we say girls, girl, go girl girlfriends. Like it's an empowering word. Mm-hmm. It just, you know, and who would want to go to a ladies lounge? That's a bathroom. And who would want to go to a women's lounge? That's boring. You know, let's, let's break some rules. Catherine Hepburn says, if you obey all the rules, you miss all the fun. Mm-hmm. And so it's time just to shake it up. And by being who we are consistently with no apology and without needing permission, that will start becoming the new norm, especially when people start acknowledging how successful 
women are and how we're changing the face and the nature and the nurturing of an organization. I mean, companies are just brick buildings or maybe cement buildings, you know, whatever they are. It's, it's what makes up a company, which is its people. And, you know, we don't want to all be robots and just pushing papers back and forth and order takers. It's about bringing that empathy and that compassion and that resilience and that love and, and heart to business. I mean, that's called connectivity. That's connective tissue. Right. And that's our power. So, you know, I think that the, the lexicon will rewrite itself. Catalyst is doing a non-for-profit organization, a wonderful job called Bias Correct, taking negative words or words that are filled with bias or stereotypes and rewriting them. So I'm not too bossy. I'm the boss. Mm -hmm. I'm not too bossy. I have executive presence. I'm not aggressive. I'm assertive and focused. I'm not an introvert. I'm thoughtful. And so, you know, there's so many positive words to counterbalance the negatives. And hopefully we will start seeing organizations rewrite job descriptions where we bring these soft powers into the highlight of what people are looking for. You know, I hire for passion and train for skill. Unless you want to be a doctor, lawyer, or an accountant, you might need some textbook stuff there. And obviously in technology, writing code. Right. But other than that, I want people that have purpose and passion in their DNA. That to me is the greatest employee that you can have because they will bring joy and happiness and caring and create this, this team. You know, I don't hire for a job. I hire for the team to make sure we are creating well-rounded teams of individuals that all look after each other and help each other be the best that they can be. Yeah, I, I, thank you, Shelley. That was really well said. And I'm in agreement with you around this conversation around permission. I think more of us as women need to know that we deserve to be there and we don't need to give ourselves permission nor have to wait for permission from society. We have to really rewrite our own rules. What is your most proudest moment in your career thus far starting the female quotient? I think my proudest moment even today is is the the pack of women that we have brought together all over the world across multiple industries, marketing, media, advertising, research, technology, sports, music, entertainment, world leaders, tech, you know, all these areas, you know, we have packs of women in over a hundred countries that, you know, if you say you're part of the FQ pack, you'll get a hug and then you'll say, what can I do? Well, a social distance hug or a virtual hug right now, but really a, a hug, you'll feel it. And then the next question will be, what can I do for you? And so I think creating that kind of environment, when we got invited to the World Economic Forum for the first time six years ago, we were told, we want you to come, but you might not feel welcome. And I'm like, oh, well, that's a strange invitation. Okay, we're coming. And so the next thing I did, I called a few girlfriends and I said, you know, would you go with me to the World Economic Forum? Because I don't want to go by myself. And of course, they went with us and we had the best time. It was amazing. And day one, you know, we already had a bunch of 
people from the World Economic Forum coming in. And now we're going on our sixth year. We are the destination for equality at the World Economic Forum. And we bring 50 women with us because you know, there's less than 17% of world leaders that are women at the World Economic Forum. So we decided just to change the script, you know, flip the script, flip the balance. It's not hard. You just do it. And then it creates a new a new environment and a new a new ecosystem. We just went for it, but I didn't do it alone. And and that's what the comfort is, you know, going together. It's a lot more fun when you go with your girlfriends, a lot more impactful. And it's where I always say a woman alone has power. Collectively, we have impact. And so, you know, I've experienced those firsthand. Or, you know, as Madeleine Albright says, women that don't support other women deserve a place in hell. We say women that support other women deserve a place in heaven. And that's how I feel right now. I feel so grateful for all of these champions surrounding me every single day. And so for me, I just walk around, you know, with my arms around so many of us because that's what I get. You give what you get, you get what you give. And it's a pay it forward with generosity all around. Excellent. So what do you say to the women that are listening, that are embarking, whether on a journey of entrepreneurship, looking for their rightful place in a corporate career? What advice would you give to them? I mean, number one, be yourself. Oscar Wilde says, be yourself because everyone else is taken. And it's true. Be you. That's what we need. If we were all the same, we would be unnecessary. So be you. Two. Confidence is beautiful. If you don't believe in yourself, no one else will. Three, there is no norm. You know, don't conform, transform. Write your own rules. You might have to zig, you might have to zag along the way. You might have to fail a couple of times before you succeed, but never give up on your dreams, your hopes, your aspirations, your wishes. Imagine big and you will do bigger. So, you know, I I think that those are really important lessons that I've learned and meet new people and be kind and welcome people. You know, a hello goes a long way to making people feel comfortable. And I think that that is really the true power of a team. It's not just your outputs, but it's also your inputs. Spend time with people you don't know. You will grow, you will learn, you will evolve. Share. And just know that that will come back to you in miraculous ways. Thank you so much, Shelly, for being on this week. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you? Thank you. You can find us on social at Shelly Zalis or at The Female Quotient. And then, of course, our website, thefemalequotient.com. Excellent. Thank you once again. Okay. Thank you.